proceeding from the great commission given by Jesus to make disciples of all nations, the early church exploded and countless souls were made new by the atoning work of Christ. Dead hearts were made alive and churches sprouted up throughout the world. As a need for clear and concise biblical interpretation arose, the Reformed Confessions of the Faith were written and still have a major impact on the church today. The Confessional Collective desires to see healthy, theologically sound churches planted and on mission for the Kingdom of Christ. Welcome to the Confessional Collective. Welcome to the Confessional Collective, where truth meets mission. I am your host, Aaron Carr, uh, together with Chris Santola and Zach Fisher. And guys, uh, this week we are supposed to be hitting on uh, the doctrine of Christ, specifically as he is found as the mediator of the covenant that we talked about the last two weeks. But before we get to that, I think we got to get uh, Zach to give us a little update on how the Doctrine Devotion Conference was, hanging with Joe and Jimmy and all that was going down there in Illinois. It was cool. Um, me and my dad went together, and then we met uh, two other guys down there that we from our church, and uh, basically it was a conference on confessionalism first and foremost. It was Baptist by nature just because it's Joe Thorne and Jim Renahan, but uh, like 90% of it was literally just a defense of confessionalism, why they're important. A lot of it was like a church history kind of session, like how confessions came about. So it was really educational, super interesting. Um, I think Dr. Renahan did like three sessions and then Joe Thorne did one session. It was cool. Is it true that he wore a t-shirt? It is true that he wore a t-shirt and he didn't wear it the whole time. He had like an Argyle sweater on with like a collar shirt underneath, which like fit him more, like his personality more. Then they went out to lunch, and when they came back, he was wearing the Doctrine and Devotion tee, but he still had on his like dress slacks and dress shoes, <laughs> so we were all kind of laughing at it, um, but he was a good sport. It was cool. Did he get a tattoo while he was there? I don't think he got any tattoos. I don't mm. think they convinced him to do that. No tattoos? No beard. He didn't grow a beard. No beard. Didn't go to Smoke the, a cigar? He did not. I, I asked him to go to the cigar shop with us, and he straight up told me he wasn't going to go, and so I was disappointed. <laughs> I was like, Dr. Renahan, you come to the cigar shop? He's like, no, I don't think so. I got up at 5 o'clock this morning. I was so, like, all right. See, he's a true Baptist. He is, yeah. Straight-laced Baptist. <laughs> he's not liberal like the rest of us. <laughs> I do find it interesting uh, that most of the conference was on the importance of confessionalism. Yeah. Would you say that that um, the guys that were primarily there were already kind of convinced, or was there some good back and forth during the Q&A on that? Um, I think most people had a rough idea. I, I think just the way that the presentation was, I think the— the guys at Doctrine and Devotion were assuming that people didn't really know about it just because it was like a broad overview of confessionalism, which was good because, I mean, I know what it is. I know about it. I consider myself confessional, but it's nice to hear a whole history of leading up to even where the 1689 came from. And it wasn't just from the Westminster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's probably what you're thinking. I know where it came from. <laughs> it's birth, birth out of, right. uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, but it, it, they, did, they did go into that. I'm trying to why. be tame here. <laughs> why it was written um, largely in unity with, with you guys, and it was encouraging just to hear historically why we were standing together with you guys in a time of persecution over in England. So yeah. it was cool. Oh, very cool. So you had a good time? Yeah, it was a good time. Cigar shop was fun. Um, we were there for like five hours, smoked a lot of cigars <laughs> afterward. Your lungs are black. Yeah. My dad woke up and his eyes were all bloodshot. I was like, Dad, you look terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Sad when you got to tell your dad he looks terrible. Yeah. Chris, what about you, man? What's what's going on in uh, the great great state of California? Oh, 84 degrees and sunny, just living the dream and in, uh, in SoCal here. We, we were joking. Uh, we were joking that every time uh, Chris comes on, he gives us a weather update. Yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, it's nice again. I don't know what to do. Uh, <laughs> we have snow on the ground here in Michigan. No joke. We literally had another snowstorm. I don't know if you knew that, Chris. Oh, my gosh. It's, it's, you know what? Go ahead. I was going to say, you triggered me a minute ago, though, when you were talking about uh, Joe wearing a T-shirt. Because that's one of my biggest fears is not being dressed with the proper attire at a, a, a you know a gathering of some sort. Well, you know, Joe, well, Joe and Jimmy were wearing like a short sleeve collared shirts, I think. But we're, I'm talking about Dr. Renahan, the old guy. Oh, he showed okay. up. He showed up in a T-shirt, <laughs> and then everyone thought it was the greatest thing ever because here's this old guy that people are thinking, ah, I don't know if he's going to be like loosey goosey or not. And then he rocked this Doctrine and Devotion T-shirt, and so we all got a kick out of it. Okay, yeah. that's even better. Yeah, <laughs> even better. <laughs> and the no, best. I'm always just terrified that I'm going to be either overdressed or underdressed. You know, and then they tell me like, oh, you know, it's business casual. And I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> Do you still have those dreams like of being in junior high and showing up without your pants on? No, no, I'm, I'm thankful I've moved past those uh, those nightmares. But, uh, <laughs> Guys usually who preach their first sermon have uh, have, a, have a dream like that, that they, uh, you know, they, they show up to the church and without pants on or something. Oh, that'd it's, be terrible. Yeah, that's that's horrible. Well, guys, let's uh, let's dive in here to uh, this specific focal point on Christ as mediator um, to kind of begin our discussion. Rather than reading the much longer confessions, I thought we would grab the Westminster Shorter Catechism on question 21, and it asks this question, who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, became man and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. I guess the first thing we need to do is kind of um, define this, that the idea of mediator and redeemer, these are not words that the confessions made up. These are, these are biblical words that are established in the Old Testament. And so maybe one of you guys can jump in and just give us a little bit of an Old Testament perspective on the importance of, of the mediator and the need of redemption itself. Just to give a, just one, one short aspect of it, nothing too in-depth, but when you think of Moses uh, mediating for his people that he led out of uh, bondage, um, he's responsible for pleading on their behalf for their sins some of them that they're not even, they haven't even come to terms with, and he's going on behalf of them to God um, and saying, uh, just seeking forgiveness on behalf of his people. And so I think that's a picture that obviously carries over and is further developed in the New Testament in a more perfect way when we see Christ and the elect. And I think that's kind of what the Catechism is speaking to in a certain sense. And uh, even the high priest there in the Old Testament, you know, the book of Hebrews makes a, a big deal out of uh, in his intercession before the people. And, uh, you know, and speaking of Christ now, of being our perfect high priest uh, who never gives up his office and uh, who is ever living to make intercession for his people. When we look at this, the, this doctrine and the need for a mediator, uh, uh, the need for redemption, there is a, a very special focus that this redeemer, this mediator, is for God's elect. So right out of the gate, you're dealing with a limited atonement aspect of, of, of this redemption. And for those of our listeners who may be uh, newer to uh, the Reformed thinking on this, um, 
Chris, could you kind of give a, a maybe a, just a two-minute synopsis on what we mean when we say limited atonement and this idea of God's elect? Sure. Uh, you know, I like to speak of it in terms of uh, actual atonement or definite atonement, just because when you say limited atonement, it automatically seems to come off with a negative connotation. Right. And it's definitely not something that is negative, but it's something we find both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, you know, when the high priest would make an offering for the people, that offering was being made specifically on behalf of Israel, on behalf of the covenant people of God. He wasn't making intercession for the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the Persians. He was making intercession on behalf of the house of Israel. And when we come to the New Testament, uh, you find it all over the place. I think the Gospel of John is just loaded with statements about actual atonement, that Christ died for his sheep, for his people, um, that the, the work of the cross was intended to save those for whom God intended it. And uh, again, you know, Ephesians chapter 1, you find that laid out in sort of the three sections there in chapter 1, that the Father in eternity past elected, the Son redeems and the Spirit applies, that the Godhead is in unity right. in the work of redemption. And so definite or actual atonement, uh, limited atonement if you have to, uh, really is just a, a clear teaching all throughout Scripture. I think uh, w when people push back at that, a lot of times they're not thinking all the way through, like, w what kind of... Uh, what what they're really doing to Christ and his office as mediator if they're going to say that there was like universal atonement because most of those people i mean any christian who says that knows that not everyone is saved so if you say that his atonement is, and his mediation is on behalf of literally all every human being then either his atonement is universal and then in some sense there's wasted blood right because not everyone is actually saved by it or um, that his mediation in some sense fails, that he's mediating for people who ultimately will never come to the Father. And we know in John 6 and passages like that, that that's impossible. So I think a, a lot of times there's an emotional reaction to, well, it has to be every, every person. But those people, I don't think, um, you know, being as gracious as I, as I can, I don't think they're thinking it through, what, what they're actually doing to Christ's office as prophet, priest, and king, you know. Well, I think you're being very gracious and very fair there. Um, obviously, in, in this answer that the Westminster Divines give us, there is a particular Redeemer over a particular people, and that's what you guys are, are bringing out. I guess we need to move on to who this particular Redeemer is. Um, we're told very specifically He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. um, there's no question to the Westminster Divines who this Redeemer is. Of course, there's no question in Scripture itself. Now, we would say, as we talked about covenant, you go all the way back to this, um, this idea of, of the pregnant covenant um, in, in the inception there, all the way back in Genesis 3.15 with this he, this idea of the Messiah who would come, and there's all these, uh, these glimmers of, of, of prophecies telling us more and more about who he would be, and then Jesus comes on the scene and says, okay, I'm him, I'm him. And uh, he is uh, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, is the way he uh, begins to be known through the writings of, of the New Testament. Um, and as we look at that, we see that he is described in some very 
distinct um, uh, verbiage, specifically by the divines here, being the eternal Son of God um, became man. I think we have to deal with that one, and I think we could go to a lot of different creeds to do that, but maybe one of the better creeds uh, is the Nicene Creed. Uh, Chris, why don't you walk us through a little bit of the Nicene Creed and give us the history for why it was written and what it was working to help uh, defend? Yeah, the Nicene Creed was dealing with the uh, the Arian heresy <clears throat> and uh, gets into the nature of Christ. And it begins, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And then it turns to the Son and says, in, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. And so you've got a, a pretty substantial Christological statement given there concerning the, the nature of Christ as being in nature God. Uh, and yet in the very next section of it, uh, it goes on saying, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, he became incarnate, by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made human. Uh, and so you have there, again, now a very definite statement of the humanity of Christ. So you've got together, you know, two, uh, two equal statements that uh, you have Christ, who is 100% God, you know, very God of very God, and yet at the same time, who is also completely human, who took human nature uh, upon himself. And, and Arius was wrestling with that, and, and he, he's, he's, he's struggling to see how the math adds up, as many are, and say, well, how can he be 100% God and 100% Yet that's what the Bible declares, right. and it's a mystery of the Christian faith that we accept, but there are many who just kind of shove against that and say it doesn't make any sense. But our understanding is it's absolutely necessary for that to be true, Otherwise, without that, we don't have the very mediator we need, who is yeah. God and, and man. That's what's interesting. Uh, you know, if you go back to the book of Job, uh, in Job chapter 9, verse 32, Job has kind of been, you know, pleading his case with his friends and uh, and saying, there's no way for me to go before God and to declare myself as righteous. It, it just, it's it won't work. And finally, in verse 32 of chapter 9, he's, for he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, and that we should go to court together, nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. And, you know, it's like Job there is almost just anticipating, in a sense, uh, longing for this mediator who could put his hand upon God, so to speak, and also put his hand upon Job, this one that could intercede or mediate between the two of them. And, and I think that's one of the things we, we miss sometimes when we read the Old Testament is this, this constant role of guys like Moses that mm -hmm. you described earlier, Zach, um, men, fallen men like, like Aaron, who act as priests, and yet all of these were acting as these mediators, but we're not able to be the full mediator we really need to, to, to not only um, present the offering at the altar, but 
he himself was behold the Lamb of God, as right. John the Baptist said. He was the he was the sacrifice. Um, interesting enough, Philippians two obviously deals with this the reality of what it is for God to become man. And I think too often we we push past that and, and miss the real depth of, of, of riches that are there contained in Philippians 2 when it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5, who though he uh, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held onto or grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The very reality that God would humble himself and become our mediator, our, our, our substitution, uh, our atonement for our sins is just mind-blowing, and here is what the confession is describing for us, is that this eternal Son of God, He invades our space, um, becoming man, so ultimately He can He can die for us. He can be the, the perfect mediator we need. It's, guys, I think that's one thing we just, we don't spend enough time just in awe on. Yeah. Uh, I think when we jump to uh, the book of Hebrews, really as a whole book speaks a lot of Christ's work as mediator, but when we go to uh, chapter 10, um, I mean, even if starting at the beginning of chapter 10, especially in verse 2, you know, they're talking about the imperfection of the priests that are offering these sacrifices, how it can't actually atone, and then it comes down to verse um, 5 and 6, 5, 6, and 7, where it quotes uh, Psalm 40, and it says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, when Christ came into the world, so he's not made, right, he's not created, but when he came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So you see Christ there um, taking on a body, and also, but, but he is coming from heaven, so he is divine, and he is also taking on a human nature. And so you've got both natures, you know, presented in that verse. Not completely explained, but it's presented there very clearly. And so, like you said, Aaron, one of those things where it's, it's mysterious, but we have to affirm it because it's there, and it's really the only solution to the problem of man, you know? Yeah. It really is a key doctrine of Scripture. Uh, the Belgic Confession in Article 26 says, We believe that we have no access to God except through the one and only mediator and intercessor, Jesus Christ the righteous, who therefore was made human, uniting together to div uh, the divine and human natures, so that we human beings might have access to the divine majesty, otherwise we would have no access. And so, uh, you know, as Jesus says in John 14, 6, uh, no, uh, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, that, that's a serious statement. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, right. that, is a, that is an exclusive statement because he is the only exclusive mediator uh, between God and man. Very clearly, um, the next kind of steps for this mediator in the sense of what the confessions and creeds begin to build off of is that this mediator fulfills specific roles, and those roles are the roles of prophet, priest, and king. And um, when we look at the one of priest, obviously that's the one that makes uh, seems to be glimmering through so much through this uh, talk of mediator. Um, but in what ways does Christ as prophet and Christ as king benefit um, his those he's saving. Let's talk a little bit about that for a few minutes. 
so as as our uh, as our prophet, he is the literal word of God. He gives us uh, God's uh, God's command, God's revealed will, uh, a revealed will that is able to make us wise for salvation. Paul tells us right, and um, and with that being the prophet, the declaring the will of God, he not only um, he not only tells us our faults, but he actually fulfills our end of righteousness. Mm-hmm. And so you, you see that captured. But as king, he also rules, sustaining and protecting us. And you see his, his, his shepherdly nature there as our big brother, as our big protector in defending us from the, um, the, the attackers that would come, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and the victory that he provides in that. So obviously these are some of the fruits that are, are talked about and that are kind of extensions of, of, of the, the ministry of Christ on our behalf. Are there any of those that you kind of um, that, that you kind of find to be the, a, a great enrichment in your own walk, your own piety? The idea that he's um, king right now, currently, you know, he's, he's, he's reigning now, um, is an encouragement. And, and it also gives us like continuity throughout the scriptures because when it comes to covenantal theology, and you see uh, Christ being like a greater David and Christ being really like the true Israel, who David and Israel both are supposed to be um, increasing God's rule and um, proclaiming his, his law, you know, and subjecting nations. And then obviously Israel and David fail in those, in those areas, and that's where Christ doesn't fail. And he ultimately inherits the nations, right, um, at the end of time. So that's encouraging for me just to know that um, where, where men have failed in the past and where um, we know we've dropped the ball as, as fallen humans when it comes to being witnesses for Christ as we should be, um, that we see that Christ ultimately fulfills it anyway, and being in Christ, that's just an encouragement to me personally. We're told that Christ executes these offices in humiliation and exaltation, and obviously we, we know the downward trend as, he, as God became man, Philippians 2, and he, he submits to the law, and um, he, he experiences all the struggles, as Hebrews describes, um, of what it is to be man. He's thirsty, he's hungry, he's tired. Um, he's, he's, he's experiencing temptation. Um, and, and all of these things, he is, is humbling himself to the point of death on a cross he didn't deserve, and even death itself. Um, buried in a tomb, three days. And then a beginning of the exaltation is that that resurrection, mm-hmm. uh, moving forward to the ascension, uh, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and eventually we know his his final exaltation that is yet to come is when he comes back to judge the heaven, uh, to judge the world. When we look at that, that he has come back to judge the world, um, and, you, and you take all of that, you can see how all three of these offices are so essential to, to our benefit. One, him being the word driving us to, to the sufficiency of him and our need of him as he is the only way, the truth, and the life. You've already described that uh, there, Chris. But then also as our victor mm-hmm. uh, over the, the, the enemies that we have. But it's this mediator that he sits constantly at the Father's right-hand side. He's not a mediator in past tense. He's, he's, he's a mediator in the present tense. Right. And it's ongoing. In fact, uh, the Shorter Catechism in 21 goes on to describe this um, when it says... Um, 
And so who being the eternal son became man and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures, one person forever. So there sitting in heaven is the God man and he is able to, um, to, to mediate on our behalf even there uh, in, in the throne room with, with at the Father's side, which is good news. I need that right. every day. <laughs> we do. Yeah. So again, we see how all these roles that he plays, prophet, priest, and king, executing them in both humility and exaltation, are our benefit. And uh, it, this is, I love this section. This is one of, to me, the, the rich sections of, of, the, of the catechism and just the detail of, of what is achieved on our behalf. But uh, guys, any, any more thoughts to that? Just knowing that, like, currently, um, when I sin now, you know, that, there, that I do have a, an advocate who is, who is mediating on my behalf and going to the Father saying, that's, that's paid for. You know what I'm saying? I took care of that sin. Um, it's, it's paid in full. Um, and he's one of my, you know, he's one of mine. And so just the thought of that is super encouraging just because I know that although we are being sanctified, um, and that is a progression that the Holy Spirit works within us, making us more like Christ, um, that that's not fully reached until glorification, you know? And so knowing that I will continue to sin and nevertheless, I I continue to have a mediator currently for my sins, um, is just hugely encouraging. What are some common roadblocks you guys think people fall into? Um, specifically on the doctrine of Christ as mediator. Some hurdles, maybe. I think sometimes um, when when people uh, struggle with the idea of being forgiven uh, of, of certain sins, they think it, maybe it's too much, like it's, you know, God won't forgive me of that. But that really is, is a low view of Christ and his sacrifice, right? If someone is thinking that my sin is too great for... Uh, for Christ to forgive me, and well, if you're in Christ, that has already been forgiven, and he's currently mediating for you, you know? And so really that comes down to kind of actually a, 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 strange, a strange type of arrogance, you know, that our sin is too great for, for Christ to have taken care of it and to continue to mediate for us. And so, um, I mean, obviously, when you approach someone like that, you're not going to just hit them over the head and say, hey, dummy, you're, you're making a small Christ, you know? But really, lovingly, try to help them to see, hey, um, we serve a big God, and Christ is, is powerful, and he's a perfect mediator. So you don't have to hang your head down. You don't have to have—a um, shame is good because it brings us to repentance, but you don't have to continually walk in guilt and shame for sins, you know? Once they're, repen- so. once they're repented of, I want to add that. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I think there's just—maybe within our uh, particular culture, just such a high view of man— that the idea that we would need a mediator between yeah. us and God uh, is kind of just uh, not even really a thought. I mean, you hear people all the time kind of, you know, when I stand before God, I'll, I'll give him a piece of my mind, <laughs> you know, this kind of thing, and uh, which is just crazy, terrifying uh, to even <laughs> think about. Uh, but just to recognize it, that in our lowly state, that as sinners, as man— that we need one to mediate between us and God, and that Christ is that perfect mediator, and that not only has he mediated for us past tense, uh, but that he continues to intercede for us now. Uh, I think even personally, I mean, that's something that we tend to forget, that, uh, you know, as Christ, as you said, is seated at the right hand of the Father, that he is there ever making intercession for his people. Right. 
And uh, just to take such comfort and find such peace in that, I think is often just a, uh, you know, maybe a forgotten grace. What do you think in the sense of evangelism, or maybe we'll go with the idea of preaching, really needs to be accentuated from this particular part of the catechism? That, that is being taught. I mean, obviously, one of the things I could bring out is that the centrality of Christ. Mm-hmm. Don't miss the centrality of Christ. The, uh, Christ is uh, the God-man, and because he's the God-man, as you've already stated, Chris, he is the one Job was looking for, to stand in between God and us. And, and we need him to do that because of our, of our fall. And too often, sermons, right, can be very moralistic, very man-focused, or they get so focused um, just solely on the character of God, but never with an understanding of the way to God. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think that's so much the problem in today's evangelicalism, but it, it, it could be where, where a person is giving all the, the great qualities of God, but never talking about the way we can come to God right. or know God, um, almost to the point where God is so wholly other, he's almost unknowable for us. And that's not true. Very clearly, God is knowable through the person and work of Christ. And that's the good news. And I, I think that's kind of what I'm, I'm stemming at. But what other what are the things do you think, uh, in the sense of mission— evangelism, uh, church planting, preaching, uh, uh, discipling, is is this particular section of the confessions have for us? Well, I think... I think, I think oh, when please. You, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we could do this for all... for the five minutes, and people would find it so amusing, I'm sure, but... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I think... I think... Just go back to what you were saying on preaching. Um, when we're preaching and... or, or teaching, because I, I teach, um, if, if we're not keeping Christ central... Um, as the mediator, but just Christ in general, keeping him central, what we're getting, what we're going to be giving people is a lot of law, and you're going to give people a big list of things that they need to, that they should be doing, right? I mean, we should take God's law seriously. We should be living moral lives. But if you're not including Christ as the ultimate fulfillment of that law, who has succeeded where we fail and who we, through faith in him, are counted as righteous, then really all you've done is heap a big burden on people's shoulders that they can never, they can never keep. And then those people are left um, kind of just by default, they, they can turn into legalists because they're like, well, I have to be better, I have to do better, not understanding that w- when they when they will they will fail, and when they do fail, they have a mediator who has perfectly kept that law, who was uh, fully man, so he's a perfect substitute, but he's also fully God, um, so he can be a perfect mediator. And so I think when we forget to keep Christ central in our preaching and teaching, I mean, it's, it's disastrous, really. Yeah, I think one of the things that I've heard that is one of the most dangerous things that you just kind of hear thrown out there. You'll hear people say, uh, you'll you know, pastors say this and uh, and sometimes buy into it, but uh, you know, lay people in the church as well. Well, you'll hear people say, well, you know, we just need to be Jesus to people. <laughs> you guys ever hear people say yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. We just need to be Jesus to them. I'm like, good luck. Yeah, that is the <laughs> stupidest idea you could buy into. Because you're not Jesus. Man, you can't bear that weight. Uh, and what's going to happen is if you do that is you're going to get wrecked. And people are going to be disappointed because you're not going to be able to fulfill what only Christ can be for them. And, uh, and, and so it's so important for us to remember that we are not mediators. Uh, that that's, There is 
one God, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And our only job is to continually point people to him and not go uh, attempting in any way, uh, no matter how uh, innocent or uh, or ignorant we may be in it, to, uh, to attempt to usurp that role that only Christ can be. It, you know, the picture that comes to mind is that, that old painting of uh, with John the Baptist pointing to the cross, and, you know, and, and you think about that, and really all we need to be doing is constantly pointing people to Jesus, right. and that's our preaching and our teaching. Um, tell, tell people to stop saying they need to be Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's an important point in the discipleship of people that we remind them they never outgrow the gospel. They never outgrow their need for that mediator. They never outgrow their dependence upon um, the prophet, priest, and king who has been humbled and is being exalted f- for God's glory, but also for our good. And and I think we got to constantly bombard people with the reminder of that because there is this horrible idea in evangelicalism that that you kind of outgrow your need for the gospel. Yeah, you you get past that. That that's a that's a it's an. Uh, a uh, a a, a what like I elementary say? elementary yeah. doctrine, and my goodness, I mean, if you read the Puritans at all, <laughs> that's they would just they they feasted on mm-hmm. the gospel, and I think that's one of the things we need to get back to. And I know there's been a lot of good things that have been done. There's conferences. There's there's uh, the Gospel Coalition. There's a lot of things that are being done that are stirring that, but we can't for a moment take our eyes off that. Yeah, isn't that isn't isn't that the solution for preachers and teachers who are struggling between do I be evan- am I should I be evangelistic in my preaching or should I try to disciple Christians in my preaching? Like the solution is to preach Christ, right? Because if you're preaching him and him as the the mediator between God and man, and if you're if you have Christ-centered preaching and teaching, you're really doing both. You're really evangelizing the lost because you're showing them the the only way to be reconciled to God. You're pleading with them be reconciled to God through Christ. Um, and, and then for believers, you're discipling them because you're not allowing them to move uh, away from their roots and what keeps them grounded in the faith, you know? Good point. Yeah, I usually just simply say, we never move past the gospel, we only press more deeply into it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, that's good. Um, I, I think one of the other things I think we would, we would want to kind of accentuate here is what does it look like to preach Jesus? Uh, what does it look like to teach Jesus in in our in our classes and opportunities? It's it's clearly not just adding Jesus at the end, right? To do that is an, an utter failure. You know, I've heard people preach a sermons very moralistic, and at the end, and say, "Oh, and if you don't know Jesus, pray this r- prayer, pray this prayer, <laughs> walk this aisle." That is a failure in what ultimately we are called to do. Uh, it needs to be uh, Christ centric in every aspect. Um, uh, Christ-centered preaching, uh, Brian Chapel's mm-hmm. book, I think, does this very well. Um, you know, the fallen condition focus he talks about in that book about the fact that every passage of Scripture gives us an opportunity to talk about man's fallen nature and need of Christ, right. the mediator, the need of the mediator. And I think we have to find that in the passage that we're teaching, find that in the passage we're preaching. And that's not anything unique to us. Again, that's Brian Chapel's book, um, Christ-centered preaching, but. It's something that it has to be there. Otherwise, you have the tendency to veer off into moralism, mm-hmm. which is destructive for people. Even just keeping like a, a wide 
a wide view of scripture, Old Testament through New Testament. So like when I'm teaching through uh, the New Testament, when I'm teaching in Romans or whatever, and there's Old Testament quotations that are being applied to Christ, like I should tell my class, I, we should flip to those passages and see how, okay, they had an immediate context, but there's ultimate fulfillment in Christ. And so just encouraging people to read the Bible as a whole, seeing Christ as the central figure, you know, don't gloss over those Old Testament quotations, show people, show people why the New Testament authors are applying those to Christ, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The, the you know, Christ centrality of, of our preaching is just crucial. I mean, when, you know, Jesus would speak to the religious leaders of his day and say, you know, you search the scriptures and you think that in them you have life, but it's they that testify of me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I mean, that's heavy. Yeah. That uh, you might know the Bible, you might know its doctrine, but if you're not actually bringing those things back to the person and work of Jesus, uh, you're missing the whole point. And you're leaving people helpless. Yeah. And you're leaving them in in the in the mire of their sin without really the solution they need, and so you're not bringing them to the mediator. Yeah, you're not bringing them to the mediator, and so I guess if we can make any appeal to our listeners, it's point people to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, be a good John the Baptist in that sense. Hate hate to hate to use a characterization, but I mean, in a sense, we all just need to be pointing to Jesus, pointing yeah. to Jesus, pointing to Jesus, um, and 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 there's our hope. Yeah. Gentlemen, it's uh, been real. Um, I I always enjoy these these opportunities we have to get together and talk about uh, the confessions and the creeds, specifically this section on Jesus Mediator. I guess if you were to give one last takeaway to our listening audience, what would it be? I would say just keep keep looking for Christ in all of the scriptures. Even and I kind of mentioned it earlier, but especially in Old Testament passages, when you're reading through the Psalms and you see David, you know speaking prophetically, like intentionally look for Christ in those passages. Not like some people try to find every little thing in the Old Testament and they say, well, that must be Christ. I'm, I'm talking about looking at the Bible as a whole, seeing how all those passages truly speak of Christ. And that's not just for teachers and preachers. That's for any, any regular Christian who's just reading through the Bible. Just keep Christ central in your reading. And I would say, too, that, uh, you know, as we go about wanting to minister to people, whether you're pastoring, church planting, uh, whatever you're doing, evangelism, uh, just to make sure that we are pointing people to Christ, that, uh, that that he ultimately is at the center of all that we're doing, and that we are trusting him in his power and in all of his offices to do what he has said that he will do. Hmm. He is a faithful God. He has proven that over and over and over and Christ has accomplished what he has come to do, and we know that he will finish what he has begun, and that's the good news. Amen. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Confessional Collective Podcast. For more information and resources, please visit confessionalcollective.com and be sure to like our Facebook page.